All right, we are into our third week of our study on the cults. This evening we're going to be in the book of Jude. We're going to do the whole book of Jude tonight. Seriously, we're going to do the whole book of Jude tonight. <laughs> Y'all are like, how? That's impossible. <laughs> With God, all things are possible. We'll also be in Ezekiel 34, and we will visit John 10 as well. And at the very end, I'm going to give you a bunch of verses, but our study will be in those three places. So, the book of Jude, John 10, Ezekiel 34. So, just to kind of recap where we've been, a Christian cult is a group that would not only claim to be a pure expression of Christianity, but they claim to be the only true and the exclusive expression of Christianity. It would be like if we said Calvary Chapel Orlando is the only true church. No one else is saved. No one else has the truth. And we do not claim that, so we're not a cult. The founders of the cult claim that they have rediscovered true Christianity by either rediscovering how to interpret the Bible or by rediscovering additional revelations from God. Now, we learned in 1 John that we had two, chapter 4, that God gave us two commands. We're commanded to not believe everyone who claims to speak for God because there is both a spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, and there's a spirit of error, the enemy. We are commanded not only to not just believe everyone who claims to speak for God, but we are commanded to test the origin of all who claim to speak for God to determine if the origin is the spirit of truth or the spirit of error. And how do we do that? We look at what the messenger says and how they live. We look at the content of what they say and the content of how they live. And when a person's words and conduct accurately reflect the statement, Jesus the Messiah, the one who came in the flesh, well, then I can know the Spirit of God sent them. When their words and their conduct do not accurately reflect that statement, then I can know that the enemy has sent them. Now, in our last study, we learned that the way that we kind of understand what those things are is that Christians have a fixed point of reference. Cults mess with this. They deviate from all of these fixed points as revealed in God's Word. God is different from His creation. God is the absolute authority over His creation. God is self-defining. He defines who He is. It doesn't matter what my opinion of God is. It doesn't matter what I say. Well, I think God is like. None of that matters. What matters is God, He's the one who defines who He is. And then fourthly, God has a purpose and plan for those He's made, His creation. Now, this week, what we're going to get into is two common traits found in all cults, and then in light of that, how to share our faith with cult members. And to accomplish this, we're going to study the topic of contending for the faith as it's taught in the book of Jude. So, let's look at the book of Jude, and we'll start in verse 1. Jude introduces his letter and the reason he wrote it by saying, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Jude is the brother of Jesus as well. He doesn't mention that here. He doesn't put that clout in there. He just mentions why I'm the the brother of the brother of Jesus, uh, James, the one in Acts. He says, I'm I'm the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Jude uh, was a, a mighty man in the church. And he says that he was writing to those who are sanctified by God the Father and those who are preserved in Jesus Christ and those who are called. That's us, right? That's us. He's writing to us. His greeting is mercy unto you and peace and love and peace and love be multiplied. So he wants us to experience all that God has for us. Now in verse 3, he begins by explaining why he writes this letter. He says, "Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation." That's what he originally sat down to write about. He said, "I wanted to talk to you about our common salvation." Listen, if I had a choice every Sunday, that's probably what I'd talk about too. I want to talk to you about the awesome saving grace of Jesus. But, he says, it was needful. When I gave all diligence to write unto you about our common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. The phrase that it was needful, it means he possessed a compelling obligation. I wanted to do this, but I was compelled to do something else. And what he was compelled to do was to exhort us, to challenge us that we should earnestly contend for the faith. Uh, The phrase earnestly contend, it means to fight or struggle for something, to exert intense effort on behalf of something. 
So what are we struggling and fighting for concerning the faith? Well, the faith is the body of doctrine, which is Christianity. We are supposed to exert intense effort on behalf of the body of doctrine, which is Christianity, everything that's in the Word. And that's why he says next, that was once for all delivered unto the saints. And I say, what do you mean once for all? That's what that word once means. It means once and never again, once and for all. As Christians, we were given something that is totally complete, something that will never be added to and must not be taken away from. And those are the truths of Christianity as found in here in God's Word. We have been given that. It's been entrusted to us. And our general practice as Christians is to be those who exert intense effort, who strive, struggle to never give ground on the truths of Christianity as found in the Bible. When you find yourself in conversation with someone, it's not that this is your weapon that you're going to and knock them down. That's not the point. The point is, though, is that as we're engaging with people lovingly, we cannot give ground, though, on the essential truths of Christianity. We cannot give ground on what the Bible has to say. Now, the reason Jude, he says, this is how you should normally be, but I'm urging you to keep on doing that. And the reason he felt compelled to urge them, to exhort them to keep on doing this was for a very sad reason. Look at verse 4. He says, for there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The reality Jude brings up is that there are deceivers inside the church environment. When it says here they've crept in unawares, it means they slipped in the side door. They slipped in the side door. Jesus uses similar language when he describes false teachers. Let's look at John 10. John 10, verse 1. John 10, chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that does not enter in by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. Now, later on in this text, Jesus is going to say, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, who's that? That's Satan. That's our enemy, right? But here he says, a thief or a robber. So, this is not just the enemy. These are other individuals who climb up, come in, some other way. They don't go through the front door. They come in. They slip in through the side door. Now, if Jesus describes himself here as a shepherd, well, then what is a thief or a robber taking from a sheepfold? Sheep. Sheep. And that's who Jude is referring to when we go back to Jude verse 4. He is referring, addressing those who steal people away from the truth that the church teaches because they are trying to build their own kingdom. When we go back to John chapter 10 and verses 2 through 5, Jesus explains, listen, I'm, I'm the one who's the real deal. In John chapter 10 verse 2, he says, but he that enters in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. I don't come in by the side door, I come in the front door. And to him, the porter opens. In other words, the one who's guarding the gate he lets me in. And the sheep hear his voice, the shepherd's voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he puts forth his own sheep, he doesn't abandon them, he doesn't expose them, he doesn't make them serve him. He goes before them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. But now we get down to verse 5. And a stranger they won't follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now, this brings us to the first common trait that we find in cults, and it is authoritarian control. Cults are always governed by a leader or a group of leaders who seek control of your life. They seek to control your life. Now, is that Christianity as presented by Jesus? Not at all. Christianity is Jesus leading us out and leading us in. Christianity is us listening to His voice, His Word, the Bible. A cult tells me I need to listen to the voice of a stranger. 
someone else's voice, someone who speaks foreign words, words not easily understood, and words that do not bring life like the Scriptures do. They are words that are designed to bring me under their control. Now, I'm going to just give two examples from two different cult groups of how this works in those organizations. The first example we're going to talk about is the International Church of Christ. Now, the International Church of Christ was founded and led for many years, I think it's about 2005 by Kip McKean, still around, he's not leading anymore, but he said this, he said, when you preach, and he's preaching to like all of his leaders in a big conference, and he says this, when you preach who is really saved, and now he's going to explain what it means who's really saved, he says, number one, you got to have faith. Two, you got to repent. Three, you got to become a true disciple of Jesus. Four, then you got to be water immersed for the forgiveness of sins. That excludes all other denominations, everybody else that's out there. Well, that puts all the control in whose hands? If you're the only one who can determine who a real disciple of Jesus is, if you're the only one who is able to qualify someone to be water baptized so they can have their we don't believe this, but so that they, what they say, you can have your sins forgiven, well, then who has all the control? They do. Those leaders do. According to the International Church of Christ, to become a true disciple of Jesus, you must complete some or all of a series of studies with one or more ICC members. You also must agree to attend all services, promise to read the Bible daily, begin recruiting others, agree to obey church leaders, even, that means even if they tell you to got to leave your spouse, quit your job, or sell your home, and you need to give tithes weekly. You must also list all the sins you have ever committed and confess these sins to one or more members. That's pretty controlling, wouldn't you say? Uh, 2020 did an episode about these guys in the late 1990s, and they were locking people in basements until they confessed all their sins. Now, after you meet all those requirements, the prospective member's eligibility for salvation then depends on the leadership determining if the candidate is ready for baptism. What happens if you die before they determine you're ready? I guess you're just out of luck. That's a lot of control. Referring to Kip McKean, former Nashville Women's Ministry leader of the ICC, Susan Condon, described McKean in her published diary, The Emperor Has, no Clo- or has Clothes, or Has No Clothes, I don't remember what it was exactly called, but you can find it. They took it off the market for a while, so you won't be able to buy it, but you can just Google it and it'll come up right away. You can read the whole thing. But in her published diary, she said this, he, referring to Kip McKean, he honestly makes you believe that his way is the only way of pleasing God. Oftentimes during the six years I worked under him, I had strong doubts about his motives and sometimes even his sanity. Yet, I kept being persuaded by others back to the fact that my doubts and my lack of trust in him were sin on my part. In a 2005 letter published by ICC's core leaders, when asked if Kip McKean was willing to be a team player in cooperation with other leaders, he replied, you don't understand. I am the star. Example number two will be from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In Doctrine and Covenants, that's one of their holy books, they're also, they believe the Bible and the three other books are their inspired books. Doctrines and Covenants is one of them. In Doctrines and Covenants chapter 1, verse 30, it states that the Mormon church is the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth. Okay, well, there are others that claim that. What does that mean? Well, Robert L. Millett, Dean of Religious Education at BYU, stated in a 2007 essay titled, Joseph Smith and the Only True and Living Church Explained, he explained that this verse, oops, that's one I want you to see later. There we go, that's the one I want. He's explained that this verse means that doctrinal finality rests with apostles and prophets. There are simply too many ambiguous sections of Scripture to let the Bible speak for itself. So who has the right to offer inspired commentary on words delivered to holy men of God who spoke anciently as they were moved by the Holy Spirit? Latter-day Saints believe the final word rests with the prophets. That's a lot of control. Who controls what the Bible means? Who controls what God says? This small group of 12 people. In a June 1994 article, Millet quoted Brigham Young, who in 1859 stated, 
every man and woman must have the certificate of Joseph Smith as a passport to their entrance into the mansion where God and Christ are. If you ever enter the kingdom of God, it is because Joseph Smith lets you go there. Yikes. Like when you say those words, you just kind of want to get out of the way and wait for God to blow up my iPad or something. Joseph Smelding, uh, Feld, Smelding, <laughs> Joseph Felding Smith, I did not do that on purpose. <laughs> Joseph Felding Smith, 10th president of the Mormon church, and Joseph Smith's nephew went on the record in 1972. Yes, he was still alive in 1972. In 1972, he was the president. He only served for two years, but he was the president of the Mormon church. He stated, there is no salvation without accepting Joseph Smith. That's not that long ago, guys. When a human being or a group of human beings controls who gets through the door of heaven and who does not, that is a foreign language when we compare it with the words of Jesus. It's like you're speaking a whole different language. It's the voice of a stranger. Jesus' sheep do not need to listen to those strange voices. It is the voice of a thief who is seeking to steal sheep in order to force them to follow the thief instead of following Jesus. Now, anytime you have authoritarian control like this, you're going to end up with abusive leadership. And so when we return to Jude 4 here, we see at the end of this verse, it says, for there are certain men who've crept in unawares. They've come in the side door who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. What's interesting is that phrase, we're of old ordained, it doesn't mean that like God ordained them to something. It's two words in the Greek. One word means long ago, and the other word means to describe or write about something beforehand. In other words, way back in the Old Testament, God warned about imposters like this. Imposters who claim to shepherd his people, but they don't, and why he opposed those who did so. So look at Ezekiel 34, because I think it's one of the best examples of one of God's warnings like this. And he explains how they abuse their authority over his people. Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, and let's look at verses 1 through 4. The whole chapter has a lot of good things to say about bad, about false teachers, false shepherds, bad leaders. But in the first four verses, it says this, and the word of the Lord came unto me saying, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say unto them, thus says the Lord God unto the shepherds. Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Instead, though, he says, you, ye, which means you all, all you who claim to lead the nation of Israel, you eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you kill those that are fed, but you do not feed the flock. The diseased you haven't strengthened, neither have you healed that which was sick, neither have you bound up that which was broken, neither have you brought again that which was driven away, neither have you sought that which was lost. But with force and with cruelty have you ruled them. Cult leaders that God warned about in the Old Testament that Jude is referring to here, that he says of old time, God warned about these guys. He told you they were coming. They feed themselves rather than those they lead. They make those they lead dependent upon them rather than strengthening them. They keep those they lead broken rather than helping them to heal so they can stand on their own two feet. They drive people away from God instead of leading them closer to God, and they force them to do things, and they lead with cruelty. In one Saturday morning zone leaders meeting, Kip McKean of the ICC started the meeting off by saying, would you believe that some of you failed to say goodnight to me last night? A tirade followed, and then silence ensued in the room. And little by little, most of the people there confessed their sin of not saying goodnight to Kip and repented. You don't have to say goodnight to me tonight to be a Christian. <laughs> or anyone else forcing people to do things, treating them with cruelty, keeping them weak, 
Brigham Young, Joseph Smith's successor in the Mormon church, taught that he taught that under certain circumstances, there are some serious sins for which the cleansing of Christ does not operate. And the law of God is that men must then have their own blood shed to atone for their sins. Under certain circumstances, there are some serious sins. In other words, that what Jesus did on the cross can't pay for that. So how do you get your sin paid for? You have to be killed. We have to kill you. Your own blood has to atone for certain sins you could commit. That's what he taught. In an 1857 sermon, Brigham Young said, will you love a fellow Mormon who has committed an unforgivable sin enough to shed their blood? Some sinners who are now angels of the devil could have been saved if only some among their Mormon brethren would have spilled their blood on the ground as a smoking incense to the Almighty. Yeah, talk about control, keeping the people in control because you have the ability to decide that was an unforgivable sin and now we've got to kill you. There are numerous records of this abusive behavior being carried out under Young's governing of Utah. The Mormon church owned Utah at one point in time. This abuse happened, this practice of blood atonement where you had to be killed to atone for your sins happened enough times that the United States government sent an army of 15,000 cavalry to Utah to prosecute a war against the Mormon church. The confrontation lasted from May 1857 to July 1858, and it resulted in the Poland Act of 1874, which stripped the Mormon church of its government in Utah and made it the property of the United States. Now, modern Mormons leaders, they claim that, well, we reject this abusive teaching. But it was reaffirmed by Bruce McConkie, one of their apostles in 1950, and then reaffirmed by Joseph Felding's… I keep doing that. (laughs) That is not on purpose. (laughs) Joseph Felding Smith in 1972. That's not that long ago. Jesus tells us that we are not to listen to such people. They have strange voices. Jude tells us that God is against them, just like God was opposed to other groups who sought to lead His people astray. Verses 5 through 7 of Jude, Jude gives us three examples of people that God opposed because they were leading His people away from Him instead of toward Him. He says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that did not believe. Now, there were numerous groups, as you read about in Numbers, right, who rebelled against the Lord during the time in the wilderness, and God had to deal with them because they were stumbling the people into unbelief, pulling the people away from God. Verse 6, another group, it was also the angels which did not keep their first estate, but left their own habitation. Well, He has reserved them in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of the great day. We don't know exactly who these angels are, and in particular what they did. There's a few clues in the Bible of what it might be, but these guys somehow left their role, their God-assigned role of being servants to the people of God, and they started leading them astray. God put them in everlasting chains. Verse 7, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities round about them in like manner, giving themselves over to sexual immorality and going after strange flesh, they are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. God brought judgment on all the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. There are two other cities that were involved too because they were pulling people away from Him. Deception is a serious matter to God. Therefore, we should take it seriously both to not be deceived and to have a heart to rescue those who are deceived. Now, anytime you have human leaders as a sole gateway to heaven or the sole gateway to truth or the sole gateway to how you should live your life, you're going to end up with abusive authority, abusive leadership. But you're also going to end up with our second common trait that all cults have. You're going to end up with confusion, which leads us to the next words here. First is authoritarian control, but secondly, Jude brings up doctrinal confusion. Look at verse 8. Likewise, also, These filthy dreamers defile the flesh. They despise dominions, and they speak evil of dignitaries. 
Cult leaders, what they do is they seek to undermine the reputation of God's true messengers. The word here, dreamers, it means those who claim to have special revelation from God. These false teachers, these cult leaders, they, they claim that they've got special revelation from God that you didn't get, that you don't have access to, that you can only get from them. Well, he says they defile the flesh. They cause you to be morally tainted. In other words, the lies they spread, the strange language they bring to you, that's not the voice of Jesus. It contaminates the people around them who follow them. He also says they despise dominions. It's just one word. It means they reject authority. And who do they reject authority? Well, they speak evil of dignitaries. Who are dignitaries? Well, those who gave us the Scripture. In fact, Titus chapter 1.15, when he is… Oh, the word despise. Titus 1.15. Oh, I'm sorry. No, this is the word that I said was contaminated, the word defile. In Titus 1.15, Titus uses it as a synonym for unbelievers. Titus 1.15, he says, unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them who are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and their conscience is defiled. So in other words, those who follow them are not in the faith. They're not believers. Those who follow them aren't believers, and, and how do they get them to come after them? Well, they reject the authority of those who gave us the Scripture. They speak evil of those who gave us the Scripture. Despite the examples we have of, of those who fell in the wilderness, that God dealt with them, the fallen angels, God dealt with them, and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, God dealt with them. Despite all those examples of God's opposition to those who lead people astray, these deceivers press forward in their goal of pulling people away from the Lord to follow themselves. Now, he says they do this, and yet the highest-ranking angel didn't even do that. Yet Michael the archangel, when he was contending with the devil, when they were disputing about the body of Moses, he did not bring against him, the devil, a railing accusation, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, here we got Michael the archangel. I mean, he is the captain of the angels. But he did all of his work in submission to God's authority. All of his work in submission to God's authority. He didn't do it in his own authority, even though he had a lot of authority. These deceivers reject that mindset because they don't know the truth. They create their own version of truth out of their own ignorance. Look at verse 10. But these, these false teachers, they speak evil of those things which they know not. The word speak evil of, it means to speak against someone so you harm or injure their reputation. And isn't that what they do when they come to your door? They try to tell you, well, the church you go to isn't in the truth. Like, they're not doing things the right way. And therefore, if you're going to do things that way, you're not saved. That is how that's their whole script. They are there to point out the problems of where you go to church and why you shouldn't go there anymore. They seek to harm or injure the reputation of those who speak the truth. But they are speaking evil of things that they don't understand. In fact, the phrase no not here means to have never comprehended the meaning of something. Deceivers pull people away to themselves by critiquing those who are actually sticking to the simple and clear truth as revealed in God's Word. That's their script. That's their spiel. But while they may have formulated a belief system that makes sense when they present it to you, they only came up with that belief system because they never understood the Bible correctly. They only came up with that way of thinking, that way of looking at the Bible, because they never understood the Bible correctly. That's why if they come to your door and you're listening to them, you're going, I've never heard anyone talk like this. Yes, it's a stranger's voice. That's why. It's not the voice of Jesus. Though they are coming to you because they've never, un- with that approach, because they've never understood the Bible correctly because they sought to understand and explain spiritual truths with their natural intelligence, it results in doctrinal confusion. And so Jude says, but what they know naturally, like brute beasts in those things, they corrupt themselves. 
The word there, know, it means to possess information about something, to have or gain insight. What they know by nature or by instinct, and the word there by nature carries the idea of arrogance. What they came up with on their own, what they came up with by their own reasoning and deduction, it says makes them like brute beasts. The word means unthinking animals. Let me ask you a serious question, a heavy question. Would you go to your pet hamster for an explanation of Scripture? I know that's a hard one. Like when I'm really struggling through a passage that I have to teach about on tonight, I go out, we have a little cage where we keep our bird, and I just sit down and I go, and his name's Cheeky, and I say, Cheeky, I don't get it. What does it mean? I never do that because he's a brute beast. He's an unthinking animal. That's why he nips at me every time I try to go help him out. He's an unthinking animal. I know some animals are smart, but, you know, Jude's making a general point here. We would never go do that. Because a cult leader, in their arrogance, searches within themselves to discover truth, their discoveries on spiritual truth are no wiser than an animal. No wiser than an animal. Even though their script sounds pretty difficult to attack or difficult to bring up problems with at times. And because it comes out, it originates out of their own instinct, their own arrogance, their own searching within themselves, he says they corrupt themselves. They harm, ruin, pervert their own ideas. In other words, not only do they twist the truth of God's Word, but their own Word is a mess. Their own Word is a mess. Sorry, my notes went blank for a second. I'm going to give you two examples of this. The first one is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, I mentioned earlier that modern Mormon leaders reject the doctrine of blood atonement that was taught by Brigham Young, one of their apostles, Bruce McConkie, another of their apostles, and Joseph Felding Smith, another apostle and their president from 1970 to 72. Let me ask you a question. How is that even possible that those guys could be wrong if they're modern-day apostles? How can multiple generations of leaders who were divinely appointed by God as the only people capable of offering divine commentary on the Scriptures be incorrect and still be worthy of our trust on everything else? That's a mess. That's confusing. The answer is they cannot be trusted. They are deceivers who have corrupted themselves because God didn't send them. Their ideas about God and about truth and about right and wrong and about the Bible all arose out of the arrogance of their own hearts. The Book of Mormon has undergone nearly 4,000 changes between the 1830 version and the book as it reads today. In one of the earliest publications of the Book of Mormon, Alma 7.10 states that Jesus was born at Jerusalem, which is the land of our forefathers. Now, you know that that's a problem, right? Everybody knows where Jesus was born, Bethlehem. And don't listen to a Mormon missionary come and tell you and say, well, you know, Bethlehem's like only a 10-mile walk from Jerusalem. True, but it ain't Jerusalem. No one in Bethlehem calls it Jerusalem today, and no one did back then. Jerusalem is not a region, it's a city. Now, this embarrassing mistake was corrected many years later to say, at Jerusalem, which is in the land of our forefathers. The truth is, Joseph Smith didn't know enough about Jesus to know he was born in Bethlehem when he dictated the Book of Mormon to his assistant. That's the truth. That's the reality. He didn't know. When you look at his history, he was a grave robber. He didn't know the Bible. So how would he know where Jesus was born? It makes sense that he would come up out of the arrogance of his own heart. What's the most important city in Israel? Jerusalem. His own word is a mess because he didn't know God's word. He never knew God's word. A second example is from the Watchtower Society. You may know them better as Jehovah's Witnesses. In 1889, Charles Taze Russell claimed in volume two of his studies 
in the Scripture. You can, you can order it and read it today. I'm not making this up. In volume two of his studies in the Scripture, that, and I quote, the battle of the great day of God Almighty, which will end in A.D. 1914, has already commenced. In other words, Armageddon will occur in 1914. We are 106 years past that. It did not happen. When that didn't happen, the Watchtower Society's view was revised. The September 1st, 1922 Watchtower publication states, the date 1925 is even more distinctly indicated by the Scriptures than 1914. The January 1st, 1925 Watchtower publication states, the year 1925 is here. Many confidently expect that all members of the body of Christ will be changed into their heavenly glory during this year. Well, that did not happen either. When neither Armageddon nor the rapture happened in 1925, further dates were predicted, 1930, 1941, and 1972. Now, none of that would have happened if their original founder understood the clear Scripture of Matthew 24, 36 that says, no man knows the day or the hour. But he didn't. He didn't know the Bible. His views were a reflection of the Adventist theology and restoration theology that was popular in his day. We'll be going over that next Sunday night. I'm going to give you, next Sunday night it won't be a ton of Bible, it'll be a huge history lesson of modern day cults. They all came from the same spot, from the Adventist movement and the restoration theology movement of the 1800s. That was what Charles Taze Russell was brought up in. That was what he knew about Christianity. He didn't know the Bible, but he knew those two views that were very popular in that day in fringe groups of Christianity. Both of those viewpoints ignore the Bible's clear teaching about the return for Christ. They have a heavy focus on numerology and predicting dates based on Daniel chapter 12. Again, I'm going to get into that next week and explain how they got so far off. Predicting dates for prophetic events was how Russell thought Jesus was to be followed. And because he didn't know the Bible, but he was trying to figure out spiritual truths out of his own understanding, his teaching became corrupted. It was a mess. The LDS Church and the Watchtower Society are just two examples of groups that are doctrinally confused. Their ideas about God and about truth and about right and wrong and about the Bible, they arise out of the arrogance of their own hearts, and therefore, they must be rejected. And these leaders are not to be trusted because they are seeking something other than the well-being of those they lead. Look at Jude 11. And I'm going to move through this quickly because it's just a lot of description. Jude says, woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and they have ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and they have perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Why did Cain kill his brother? He wanted recognition. He didn't want to do the right thing. He just wanted recognition. Why did Balaam try to curse Israel? He wanted money. Why did Korah rebel against Moses? He wanted Moses' position. Recognition, money, position. That's a common thread in cult environments. Money, recognition, position. The leaders of cults are after one or all of those things. And so as a result, verses 12 through 16 is how they act, how they treat people. They are spots in your love feasts when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. They are clouds without water, carried about by winds. They are trees whose fruit withers without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. They are raging waves of the sea, foaming out of their own shame. Anger problems are very common among these types of cult leaders. They are wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever, And Enoch, also the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these, saying, it's another Old Testament prophecy that warned of false teachers, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. They are murmurers complainers. They come to you and tell you, oh, your church is this, this, and this. They complain. Well, look at all the evil things that have happened down through history with the church. You can't trust them. 
They walk after their own lusts, and their mouths speak great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. That phrase, because of advantage, are two words that mean for the purpose of personal gain or benefit. They are in it for themselves. And because of that, they will experience God's judgment. Now, you would think up to this point, we read through verse 16, that Jude would be like, all right, I've given you the goods, now go get them, tiger. Go get them. And we can very easily make the mistake of when the person comes to our door, we take these two weapons of their abusive authority, their authoritarian control, and their messed up doctrine, their confused doctrine, and just whacking them side the head with it. And you're like, oh, you're here? Let me get you. You know, pastor told me about all you guys. Your organization is abusive, and your leaders are liars. But what's so fascinating is that's not how Jude tells us to respond to them or to those who have been influenced by them. And so, starting in verse 16, Jude gives us five ways. I'm going to give you a sixth. Please don't call me a cult leader. (laughs) He gives us five ways that you can witness to people who are involved in this. He says in verse 17, how we're going to contend for the faith. He says, but beloved, remember you the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ and how they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. In contrast to their approach, which is to point out all the problems in all the other churches out there, or to say that your Bible can't be trusted, or that your Bible's not enough, or that you can't be trusted to understand your Bible correctly, our approach, in contrast to that, is to remember the words that have been delivered to us once for all. If you're going to witness to cult members, use the Bible always. Stay there. Use the Bible always. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 55.1, he says, when I send my word to go out and do something, it does not return void, right? It accomplishes what I set it out to do. God has given us his supernatural word, which the Holy Spirit comes behind, and he uses it. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is quick, it's alive, it's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it has the ability to pierce through the soul and go all the way to the spirit, part of us that fellowships with God. You might win the argument, but if you don't pierce through the soul, you didn't win the soul. Use the Bible always. It alone has the ability to convict a heart, to change a person. It's how we were changed, right? Number two, remember that love is how others know we belong to Jesus. In verses 19 and 20, these be they who separate themselves, they're sensual, they don't have the Spirit, but even though that's true, you beloved. In other words, you're not going to act like that. You're not going to respond with fleshly behavior or fleshly ideas. You're not going to separate yourselves from them. You're going to walk in the Spirit you're going to remember that you are dearly loved by God. Yes, when cult members come to you and they're going to appear essential, they may not know it, but they're trying to manipulate you by using their script. They're trying to trap you with scriptures or questions that corner you into becoming confused or not having good enough answers. That can be frustrating, right? Remember when that happens to you. Remember Jesus who prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what to do. He prayed that for the very people who were nailing him to the cross. Remember that you are beloved and that God loves them too. That we love him because we are first of all loved by him and that we express our love for him when we love others. Love is how they'll know we belong to Jesus, not by slamming the door, not by yelling at him, not by being unkind. In Philippians chapter 2, it tells us to take a different approach. Philippians 2.10, or not 2.10, 2.14. 2.14 through 16, I've got to close this out quick. It says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. What did Jude say earlier they do? They murmur, they argue, they complain about your church. Don't do that back to them. 
Do all things without murmurings and disputings that you might be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. That's what we do. We use the Bible always, and we, we don't do things their way. We do things Jesus' way. Thirdly, he says, pray for them. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Whenever we share the good news of Jesus with someone, our goal is to shine our light in such a way that they have an interaction, not with us, but with God. That's what we're shooting for. If they leave our conversation only having a conversation with us, the conversation was powerless. That means that sharing the gospel is a supernatural interaction, which means we need to pray, 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 pray. So often when they're throwing all the confusing stuff at you, instead of going, what does the verse say here, here, and here? Just start praying. Just start praying. 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5 says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. How do we pull down those false, the vain imaginations, those vain thoughts that exalt themselves about what, about what we know is true about God? Those proud, arrogant ideas that came out of the hearts of their cult leaders that have persuaded them that they need to go share that with others? How do we cast down those vain thoughts? Not with human devices. That will only happen by the Holy Spirit opening their eyes and Him convicting them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That means we need to pray. Fourthly, Jude tells us, always be kind and gracious. He says in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with reverence, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. He says you got to guard yourself when it concerns the love of God. Guard yourself so you remain in God's love. What does God's love look like? 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. It's patient, it's kind, it's gracious, it's all these things. He says, be compassionate toward them. Remember they are lost. Remember the only reason you're not lost is God's mercy. Always be kind and gracious. Fifthly, the last point that Jude makes is deal with assurance of salvation. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. Amen. All cults embrace legalism to some degree. Legalism, in a nutshell, is a concept that I have to do certain works, or I have to, to perform certain works either to achieve or to maintain a status that makes me good enough to be accepted by God. That's legalism. Now, because every single person falls short of God's glory, nobody reaches perfection this side of heaven, there can be no assurance of salvation to anyone who's in a cult. They never have assurance of salvation. Even if you, if you ask them, say, do you absolutely know that you're going to heaven? They'll say, well, you know, I, I'm doing this, this, and this. And if I keep at it, yeah. Yeah. We can never be acceptable to God based on our works. So share your testimony with them that your hope is not in your own keeping power. You know, share that it's in the power of the one who is keeping you, the one who is able to keep you from falling. Share the joy of the hope you have that Jesus is assuredly going to present you faultless before his Father's throne with great joy. They don't understand that. Share your firm conviction that your eternity is in the hands of the only wise, all-powerful, and all-glorious Savior. What shall separate us from the love of God, Paul asks? What shall we say to all these things? If God's for me, who can be against me? Nothing can separate me from his love. Paul says, for I am convinced that neither height nor depth nor any other created thing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul later told Timothy, for I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. In 1 John 5, 11 through 13, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son has life. These things I write unto you that you might know that you have eternal life. You have the Son. You have life. And your basis of life is faith in Christ alone, not anything you do. 
they cannot claim that. This is your testimony, and it's a glorious one. Don't ever forget that. Because when they see that in you, the word of your testimony, they might have the word of their testimony, but it's going to be a little bit jolting them to go, how can they have that too when they don't believe what I believe? And at some point, you're going to have to come to the conclusion that both of you need to appeal to something outside of that as the authority. Something outside of people as the authority. This. Now, the last one, and then I got to quit because I'm past time. Stay on one subject at a time. When they try to pivot to something else because their, their main focus is to point out the problems in other churches. So if you're kind of giving them some answers to their, their complaining about what your church does or what the church does, when that's going on, they're going to try to pivot to something else that they think your church does wrong. Don't let that happen. Say something like, okay, but let's go back to what we were talking about before. Stay on one subject at a time. Stay there. It will help you stay grounded in the truth that is once for all delivered to us instead of bouncing around on all these other topics. Amen? All right, let's stand. See, I can do a whole book of the Bible in one night. Lord, your servant Jude urged us to contend for the faith. And we want to do that, but we, we don't want to do that by, you know, just beating people up when they come to the door. And so, Lord, we, we need to deal with our own annoyance that somebody's there, our annoyance about how they're trying to trap us and trick us and corner us so that the things that we know are true don't seem to now all of a sudden make any sense. Lord, remind us of the love and mercy you showed to us when we were not saved. And help us to have that same love and mercy for others. And Lord, equip us with the word that Jude spoke tonight. I pray that the, the words he spoke would not leave our hearts, that we'd be able to meditate on it and think about it throughout the week so that as we, we find ourselves in a situation where we're engaging with someone who's a cult member, we can stick to the word. We can be kind and gracious. We can remember to pray for them and do all the things that Jude says here so we might faithfully be good witnesses. We might show them that we are your disciples. So, Lord, we love you. Help everyone to do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.